who are not heading downstairs, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to your Bibles to the book of Malachi. It is, um, if you find Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, go one book to the left and you will be in Malachi. It is the last Old Testament book. Um, don't have much of an intro today, so I'll, I'll give it a shot here. Uh, this text is important. I'm really excited about that. I, I told you that when I was on sabbatical this summer, somehow God just drew me to this book. And, and this text in particular, we need to know this. It talks to us about the worship of God, about the glory of God, that his name will be made known among all the nations. And it talks about a problem with Israel, that they were, they were not worshiping God rightly. And I think this text rightly diagnoses the problem with the American church. This, problem, this text diagnoses the problem within our own hearts. And so it's here to, to call us to repentance, call us to examine ourselves, and be reminded of the greatness of our God. So that's, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the greatness of our God today and why he's worthy of all worship and all praise and all glory among all peoples and all creation. And so with that, I want to encourage you, go ahead and stand. And we're going to read chapter 1, verse 6 to 14. So the rest of the chapter, we stand here at the reading of God's word to remind us that this is God's word. It comes to us inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of encouraging us correcting us and equipping us. So here we go, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, that, if then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand... Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be made great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what is taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering? Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to, sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let me pray. Father, Father, this is a good text. It is a heavy text. 
It's a gracious text, one that you, like a father, is coming to your child, that we would understand how we are living, that we would examine our hearts, and that we would be reminded of your greatness, of your great power, of your great love, of your mercy, your majesty, your beauty, and your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that as we walk through this text, every single one of us would examine our heart that we'd remember the cross, we'd remember who you are, what you have done for us, that our hearts would be stirred and they would be thrilled with the joy of knowing you, of loving you, and worshiping you with every aspect of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bless us this morning, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, As we start, I just want you to get like a picture in your head this morning. Have you ever been like in really, really thick fog? You know, the the kind of fog that that makes it very difficult to drive in. You can't really see lights around you. You can't see cars around you. It's hard to see the road and especially the lines in the road. If you've been in that, you know it's dangerous. You can't stop. You must keep going, and yet to go is dangerous, and, and it can be very, very life-threatening even. Now, now keep that, that fog, that imagery in your mind. What we see this morning is that Israel has, has a spiritual fog, and it's settled in on their hearts. In verses 1 through 5, this is what we, we read through last week and we preached last week, we see that Israel no longer sees and understands the love of God. Life hasn't gone as as they planned it, as they hoped, and therefore they concluded God has not held up his end of the bargain. Israel's discouragement over their circumstances has produced doubts in their hearts. They're skeptical of God, and this skepticism has produced a fog that now sits over their heart. They doubt his love. They doubt his care. They doubt his presence. They doubt his power. Hear this. A spiritual fog is far more dangerous than a physical fog. And we can see this in the accusation that God's going to bring to his people. So if you look at verse 6, we're going to see the accusation, you have despised my name. That's kind of the first section that we're moving into. And what God does, he starts with a, a lesser to greater argument. He says, sons honor their fathers, servants honor their masters. Notice then what God says. If I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? The implication is that that God is the ultimate father. He's the ultimate master. He's the one who ought to be honored and worshiped and feared. And yet, Israel hasn't honored him. They haven't feared him. In fact, we see the accusation when he says, O priests who despise my name. The priests are the ones who are specifically appointed within the people of God, within Israel, to lead Israel in the worship of God. So to so maybe bring that in just like current context, you might say like the pastor and the elders are those who are called to lead the people of God into the worship of God. And what he says is, your leaders, they've despised my name. And I think we, we probably all have known or heard the principle, as the leadership goes, what happens? So goes the people. 
So if eventually the pastors in the church have been compromised in their faith in God and they're not leading the people into the worship of God, eventually the people won't worship God also. And that's what's happening here in Israel. And the rest of the book of Malachi will begin recording how not only the priests, but all of Israel has this spiritual fog that is resting on their hearts and they do not worship God. And so there's three words that I just want to bring to your attention as we're looking in this text to make sure we understand why he's coming to them and saying, you've despised my name. The first one is just the word honor. The word honor, it refers to glory. And, and what we see all throughout scripture and what we know to be true in this world is that the honor or the glory of a person is to match their worth. And so what we have here in our passage, we see that Israel does not give honor to God. They don't count him as one who is worthy of worth, of worthy of glory, of worthy of honor. And so they're not honoring him. The second word is the word name. And what's helpful here is the word name. It's used six times in our passage. And when, when God says, you've despised my name, the word name is referring to the totality of God. Every part of him, every aspect of him. So when he says, you've despised my name, it's not that Israel is questioning an aspect of God, a part of God. It's not that they're just saying, well, you're glorious in all these ways. We're just not going to honor you here. They're saying, no, in, in all that you are, God, we do not glory you. We do not honor you. We do not fear you. We do not love you. And then there's the word despise. And this, this word's easy to understand. It means to think lightly of, to look down on, to, to think with contempt, to treat someone or something as worthless. So by failing to honor the totality of God, the name of God, Israel is counting him as worthless. And we could stop right there and move on, and we would have a fairly good understanding of, I think, what the author is, is communicating but there's more. If you go back to verse 3, we read that, that God said he loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Do you remember that? We spent the whole last week in election. It's super easy to understand, not debatable or controversial at all. <laughs> totally easy. Totally get that. Um, but Jacob, Jacob represents the people whom God has chosen to save and bless. Esau represents those whom God has not chosen, and they reject God, they do not honor God, they do not love God. And what we see is that the people who come from Esau, the Edomites, all throughout Scripture, they personify the pride of self-centered existence. And so if we were to just kind of generalize it, Jacob represents the believers, Christians, who follow God and honor God. Esau is called, represents those who do not honor God, do not love God. They would be unbelievers. So there'd be a general way to understand not only these two sons, but the people groups that come from them. Well, if we were to go into Genesis 25, where it talks about where God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau, we see also a story where Esau gives up his birthright. It's a really interesting story. So Esau is this manly man who goes out hunting. He comes back. He's a little hungry. And Jacob's sitting there, and he's just cooking some stew. 
And it smells good. It looks good. And so Esau says, let me have some stew. And Jacob, the conniving cheat that he is, goes, well, how about I take your birthright? You give me my birth, you give me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew. Now, the birthright is given to the firstborn son. It means Isaac, the father, would give all that he had would go to Esau, which would include the very blessings and purposes of God. And so when, when, I, when Jacob is saying, I want the birthright, he's saying, I want everything. And Esau, he looks at the stew, and he goes, well, it does look pretty good stew. So he makes the trade. He says, I'll give you stew, and no, or I'll give you my birthright for the stew. That sounds good. Now listen to how Moses, the author, describes this event. Genesis 25, verse 34. You can't miss it. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Don't you want to like know how good it tasted? Like, it had to be good. I digress. All right. He ate and he drank and rose and went his way. Last words. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. you got to make the connection here. Malachi is picking up on this word despise, that Esau despised his birthright, not only the blessings he would receive from Isaac, but the blessings and purposes of God. He's despised them. And who does Esau represent? Those who reject God, do not honor God, do not glorify God, unbelievers. And now God is turning to Israel and says, you've not honored my name. You've rejected the totality of who I am. You've despised me. You're treating me like an unbeliever. You're functionally just like Esau. You see the accusation that's coming now? He's not just saying, you guys have just kind of veered off a little bit. You act like unbelievers. Nobody would know that you are my people. Now think about this. If I came up to you later today and I said, there's no way you're a Christian. There's nothing about you that, that proclaims the love of God. I would have no clue that you're a believer. In fact, I know that you're an unbeliever. You'd hopefully be shocked. And you, you should say, what's your evidence, right? I mean, you would want some pretty hefty evidence at that point for me to go, I don't think you have any clue who Jesus is. And so that's exactly what happens next. We go into evidence. And so what God's going to now do now, he's, he's going to say, the quality of your worship is worthless. And so I just want, I want you to get that in your mind. He said, your worship is absolutely worship or worthless. Look at verse 7. He says, you've polluted my altar. Now the word pollute means to defile, to make unclean. And, and it says, because they despise God's name, they now despise the very worship of God. So don't, don't miss this principle. The quality of your worship reveals your understanding of God. And I think it's a pretty, pretty easy understanding. The quality of your worship will reveal your understanding of God. So notice what kind of animals that they sacrifice. In verse 8, God says, You offer blind, lame, and sick animals. Does that sound like a worthy sacrifice to God? Blind, lame. Now, interesting, in the book of Leviticus, God spells out exactly the type of sacrifices they're supposed to worship, they're supposed to offer. So in Leviticus 22, verses 19 and 20, this is what God says. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish, 
of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. The animals given to God are to have nothing wrong with them. They'll be perfect, free of any blemish. No spots, nothing in them at all. God is perfect unless he's worthy of a perfect sacrifice. But, but get this, Israel... They're finding the the sheep and goats that are are lame, blind, and disfigured, and they're keeping the best for themselves. So so maybe to put it like this, men, imagine it's Valentine's Day. Imagine you forgot it's Valentine's Day. You're on your way home. It's late. You're tired. You don't want to go out of your way. So you swing by the gas station, and you pick up a $5 plastic pink figurine that says, be my Valentine. You get home, you walk up to your wife, you hand it to her and say, this is how much I love you. <laughs> like, would, would she be honored? Would she be like, oh, honey. No, that's exactly how Israel's treating God. In fact, notice, notice what God says in verse 8. Is that not evil? He just calls it straight up evil. Your, your worship is evil. And then he says, not even your governor would accept that. You're trying to give something to me that you want to even give your, your physical governor over the land. But you think that I'll take it? But God's not done. It's not done yet. So look at verse 13. We see that not only do people give blind and lame sacrifices, but it says, but that you bring what has been taken by violence. So they're stealing blind, lame, and sick animals from other people. So here here it is. Like, don't, don't miss this. God's not worthy of my blind, lame, sick, and, and half-dead, disfigured animal. I'm going to steal your blind, lame, half-dead, disfigured animal and give him yours because I still want to keep mine. So I take it from you, and then I give that to God. I mean, could they despise God's name anymore? Another principle we could take, and we'll talk about it more later, if your worship costs you nothing, then it is not worship. If your worship costs you nothing, then it is not worship. So, so far, God has, has pointed out the physical offerings that they've brought to God. And he's made it clear that your, your worship is worthless and it's evil, but he's not done. Now, in verse 13, he wants to point out their words. And he's going to say, your words, which your words are the window to your heart. That's what we learn in Luke chapter 6. They point out exactly the condition in which Israel is in. And, and notice what it says. Israel says that worshiping God is a weariness. So Israel says, man, worshiping you, God, is a burden. So let's go back to our, our husband-wife imagery here. He comes back home, and he, and he hands her the plastic pink figurine, be my valentine. And he says, loving you is a burden. I just think through that. And some of you wives, you actually know what it does feel like to be told that because you've been told that. Or husbands, you've been told that. And here, Israel is coming to God and saying, 
worshiping you? There's no point. There's no joy in it. We don't want to do it. It's just hard. We're not going to do it well. We don't love you. It's obvious you don't love us, God. There's no benefit to the worship of God. Do you see how when you go back to verses 1 through 5, and you see they question the love of God, which means they no longer understand their salvation. They no longer understand God's grace and mercy. Now there's a spiritual fog that sets on their heart that has blinded them to the beauty and magnificence of anything that God is. They're totally blinded to God. So we need to pause and just think through this. What God has done here, he's, he's like a good father. He doesn't just let his son just run and do whatever he wants, but he comes alongside him, and he, he holds up a mirror to his heart, and he says, I need you to know how you've been living. And so he's, he's pointing out the spiritual condition of the heart of his son, of Israel. And that's what, that's what we need to do now. You, it would be wrong to read a text like this and not examine our own hearts. And so earlier we said the quality of your worship reveals your understanding of God's worth. And so um, I just want us to ask ourselves, what is the quality of our worship? I mean, we, we could go into, like, could the state of the American church like, be what it is because we've largely failed to examine our heart? And I'm not trying to make a case for, against like, the church in America or going to rant or anything, but you just kind of look at it and go, what would happen if we and, and all the church, we regularly examined our heart? Could it be the reason we don't see more people coming to faith is because of our lukewarm worship? If our worship is what declares the worth of God and the world looks at how we live and they go, God doesn't look so great when I look at your life, do we blame them for not then wanting to hear the message of the gospel? So we, we ought to examine our hearts before God. In fact, we see all throughout Scripture that we're to examine our hearts. We're to do it every day when we come into God's Word. And we're to do it every time that we come and we partake of communion, which we'll do a little bit later this morning. In fact, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 to 30. Paul's telling us, examine your hearts. This is what he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And get this, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, so if you do it without examining the body and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So, so just get some of the Corinthians are sick. Some have died because they've wrongly worshipped God because they failed to examine their own hearts. Like, I, don't, I don't know that many of us do this, but I think we should. Have we considered that sometimes the reason we're sick is because we've wrongly worshipped God? Because we're not examining our own heart? Listen, if, if God makes people sick, and will even kill people, so that his name will not be profaned, I think we conclude that examining our hearts is pretty important. And so I, I just want to ask questions, and, and I, I want to encourage you, don't think about your neighbor. 
Don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your children or your parents or anyone else. Just think about yourself right now and wrestle with what does my worship of God look like? So how would you describe your worship of God? Is it wearisome or is it full of joy? When you gather on a Sunday, are you more concerned with the football game or whatever you have later or the message of God? Are you more concerned with the recognition of others or with how you love God and serve one another? Does your Bible time, when I say your Bible time, does your frequency of your Bible time, the hunger that you display during your personal Bible time, your devotion to God in your Bible time, does it point to God being at the center of your life or on the peripheral? Does your prayer life reveal a total dependence upon God or your independence of God? What does your financial giving look like? Does your checkbook show that you are most concerned with the advancement of God's kingdom or, or your kingdom? And we'll look at this more um, in chapter 3 because he talks about giving. But I often get asked, how much, how much should I give? 10%? Is that what I do? And this is what 2 Corinthians says. Paul says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, your, your giving should match the joy you have in God. Just let that be your principle. Don't worry about 10% or any other percent. Just what's your joy in God? And let your, your giving match that joy. Earlier we saw Israel, they, they give what they stole. So their, their worship costs them nothing. And if, I would say if your worship costs you nothing, if it's absolutely zero impact on your budget, I would... I would, you know, try to figure that out and try to examine what should you give. Does the way you use your words point to a love for God and for others? Or is your tongue filled with gossip? Is it filled with slander? Is it filled with sarcasm? Is your gut reaction anger? Or is it patience and gentleness? Let me ask you this. When is the last time you asked forgiveness from someone? A lack of of repentance certainly reveals a hard heart. Listen, if we don't regularly examine ourselves, if we don't examine our hearts, then we will also experience a spiritual fog that can come on our hearts. And it can come many, many ways. Let me just give some ways. Um, a fog can set in because of trials and suffering. You can say, is God there? If God loved me, why would he allow this? So if you're in a period where you're going through a hardship for a long period of time, it's easy for your heart to begin making, or begin questioning, is God there? Does he love me? It can be because of unmet expectations. You want to be married. You want a better job. You want more money. It can be things like that. It can be because of acceptance. In order to avoid cultural, political pressure, you begin to make small compromises in your faith, little by little, which over time weakens your faith. And what started out as a small compromise now, you're beginning to actually wonder, do you love God? Is he there? Is it worth gathering with the church to worship him? Now, maybe you're here and you say, okay, but, but does it really matter? Is it that big a deal if I check the sermon or check the game during my sermon? Is it really that big of a deal if my Bible reading time is fit in when I'm at a red light driving? And that's, 
the most that I read God's word. Like, is that really that big of a deal? Yes, it is. And it's not because I say that it is. It has nothing to do with what I say, but because of what God says. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is this massive verse. It says, oh, that there were one among you. And you got to read it like, like, so there's a problem with this. this, I have a hobby horse here. Like we read the Bible wrong when you just read it like totally bland without any emotion. Like you have to understand like how it's to be read. And the best way to do it is just keep reading it over and over and over again. And you'll begin to see it. But if you read it, oh, that there were one among you who shut the doors, you're totally missing it. Like God's saying, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. He says, I have no pleasure in you. And do you get that? He says, you, I have no pleasure in. I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says, I hate your worthless, your worthless worship. I'd rather you stay home than come to church. I don't want to see you here is what God is saying. I wish that somebody would just lock the door, put a chain around it, and say, go away, because your worship stinks. Isn't that incredible that God's saying that? So when we say, is it a big deal to examine? Yeah, it seems like a pretty big deal. God's got a lot to say about it. Look at verse 14. He says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. So you, you look at your, your, your male, and it's perfect, and you say, this I will give to God. Oh, but come sacrifice time, I'm going to go jump the fence, steal my neighbor's disfigured, lame, messed up sheep, and bring that and offer that. So in other words, when you have the ability to worship God rightly, and you don't worship him in a way that honors him, cursed be the cheat. Now maybe, or maybe some of you are here and you're really smart. And you say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's like the wrathful God. Good thing Jesus came to save us from the evil daddy. Problem is, Bible presents the father and the son as having one will. And, and they both treat worthless worship the same. Listen to what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. So they have lukewarm worship, which is worthless worship. And this is what Jesus says. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. I don't think there's a big difference between saying, I wish you wouldn't come, cursed be the cheat, and you're like vomit. Like, I, don't, I don't think there's a big difference there. So the father says, I hate this kind of worthless worship. The son says, I hate worthless worship. So it's not me up here telling you, hey, it's a pretty good idea to examine our heart, because I think it is. It's God, like a father, graciously coming alongside us and saying, I need you to examine your heart. It all comes from, from a heart of love that he's confronting us. We cannot love God and despise God at the same time. Paul says in Romans 12:1 that we've been saved to be a living sacrifice, which means everything we do is to be an act of worship. How you speak, the way you think, the way you, the way you act, all ought to give glory to God, which means how you parent, 
how you husband, how, how you act as a wife, how you do marriage, how you are as a parent, how you work, how you act with your neighbors. I'm really glad my neighbors jumped my car today so I could get here. I love that. The way you joke. All of life is to be worshipped to God. All of life. There's no on-off switch. There's no categories. This part's for God. This part's for you. And this part's neutral. All of life is worship. God saved us. So our entire lives would give honor to the name of God. The totality of who God is. This is what 1 Corinthians says. Chapter 6. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When God saves you, he purchases you, he redeems you, he saves you from a kingdom of darkness, from being in the people of Esau, from being an unbeliever, that you would then be a chosen child of his, adopted into his family, given his spirit, that you would now, with his spirit in you, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, worship God. And so, what do you do when you realize you're living like Israel? What do you do when you realize there is a spiritual fog that has settled on my heart? Or what do you do when, when, you, when you know a loved one or a friend and you can see that spiritual fog on their hearts? What do you do? How do you come alongside them? How do you counsel them? How do you counsel yourself at this moment? How do we once again fight to see the beauty and the magnificence of God? How do we once again see his love? Well, we're told, remember the greatness of God. That's what Malachi wants us to see. Look at uh, Four times in this chapter, the word great is used. Chapter 1, verse 5, twice in, chapter, in verse 11, and in verse 14. And I want to just specifically draw your attention to verse 11. Verse 11, I think, is, is the crux of everything here. It says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So God is telling them that he will be worshipped by every nation that the sun shines upon. Our God's not a local God. He's not limited to certain geographical areas. Our God, the God of the Bible, is the one who sovereignly rules over the cosmos. God's plan was never that it would only be Israel, one small people in one small part of the world that would worship him. But his plan is that there would be a people from every nation that would worship him. And so when we think of the greatness of God, we can come up with at least two ways to think about this. We're going to go through this a little bit quick, especially the first one. We'll spend a little more time on the second one. At least two categories in which we can look at the greatness of God. Number one, we must remember God's great power. I just want you to think about this. The psalmist in 19.1, he cries out, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So when we look at creation, creation's a gift from God that we'd be reminded of his greatness. Do you, do you realize that? Like, Throughout the entire Bible, especially the Psalms, 
Creation is referred to as a means of directing us to the worship of God. Do, do, do you know that? Like when you walk around every single day and you look at creation, it's to move your spirit to worship and praise of our God. That's the way the Bible talks about creation. Like think about this. Look to the sun. It points out his glory and purity. And just as the sun faithfully rises and sets, so God faithfully keeps his promises to his people. Look at the trees. They declare the righteousness of God. Look at the mountains. They declare his strength, his power, and his faithfulness. Look at the grass. Look, or look at the rain and the green grass. And we're reminded of how he provides for all of his creation. You look at the snow. And you're reminded that salvation that he gives, that by the blood of his son Jesus, he washes us what? As white as snow. Look at the ravens. And we're reminded that not one will fall from the sky without his knowledge. He has personal knowledge of every single living thing in all of creation. Look at the flowers of the field. We're to be amazed and how he clothes them with splendor and majesty. And then be reminded that he loves us more than flowers. So how much more will he care for us? And when we look at the depths of the ocean or the expanse of the sky, we're reminded that he forgives us. And he tosses our, our sins in the depths of the ocean, never to be remembered. Or we're to be reminded that God is infinite in size, unable to be contained, unable to be restrained, unable to be overcome. And so one thing, when, when the fog of sin begins to settle in on our hearts, you'll see that you walk through creation and none of it is reminding you of God. But God has given us his word that not only would we be saved and believed in him, but that we would see the world in an entirely new way. That all of creation is now given as a means of reminding us of the character of God, his faithfulness, his power, his love, his grace, his mercy for us. But I want to go to the next one. We need to be reminded of God's great love. It's because we have apathetic, skeptical, lukewarm hearts. That's why God sends his son Jesus into the earth. It's because all of us are like Esau. It's because all of us trade the glory of God for soup and sex. We're distracted from the glory and the magnificence of God for worldly pleasures. Oh, Romans 1 clearly teaches that all of humanity is guilty before God. Rather than worshiping God, we would rather worship the things of creation. And so what we see in Scripture is that Jesus then comes to save us so that we'd be, so he would have a people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language that would come and worship him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in the Old Testament, regularly Israel is told, be, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus. The Exodus was the greatest Old Testament salvation event that took place. It, it pointed that Israel is the people of God. But the Exodus was really a salvation event that points to a much, much greater salvific event. 
And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, never are we told, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus. No, the Exodus points to the cross. So in the New Testament, remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross. Both Testaments are pointing to the cross. That when we doubt the love of God, when we look at our suffering, when we look at our circumstances, and we begin to be blinded of his magnificence, at that moment, what we would do is go to the cross and be reminded that it's through the suffering of the Son of God that he paid the price for our sins so that we can endure whatever suffering we are in. Because we know that God loves us. We know that his mercies are new every morning and that he will continue to provide the grace and faith and strength and mercy we need every day to face whatever trials we are in. That's what they need to know right now. They're looking at circumstances, and they're going, God doesn't love us. If God doesn't love us, what does it matter if we worship him? What's, what do they need to know? They need to know the love of God, which is the greatness of God. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, this is what we read. It says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So twice he says, this is love. You want to know what the love of God is? The cross of Jesus. So when we doubt the love of God, which then makes us doubt his power and his presence and his might and his ability, we come to the cross, we go to the cross, we go to the cross, we go to the cross. And let me encourage you, husbands, wives, moms, dads, what your spouse needs, what your children need more than anything is to see you worship God with all your heart, soul, and mind. They need to see the worth of God through your worship of God. And so one of the greatest things you can do every day is spend time in God, growing in your love for him, letting the spirit through his word just pour gasoline on top of the, the flame of fire or the flame of faith within your heart that it would grow brighter and brighter and brighter every day. So when you're with your children, when you're with your spouse, you're regularly pointing to creation saying, isn't God great? Look at these trees. They point to his righteousness. Good thing Jesus has given us his righteousness that now dwells within us. Look at Mount Rainier. Unmovable. Oh, that is our God. He is our rock and our salvation, a safe refuge. We need to be regularly reminded of the greatness of our God, not just on Sundays, not just on compartments of our life, but throughout the totality of our life, we're called to worship him. So what I want to do, and I just want to take a moment to do this, um, I want to just say, so, so how, do, how do we do this on a daily basis? And, and specifically, um, like, let's say next Sunday, you wake up and, and you say, I, I don't, I don't want to go to church today. You ever feel like that? Careful. <laughs> I do judge. No, I'm just kidding. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. I'm sinful. Um, you ever wake up and you're just like, I, I don't want to go to church today. Or tonight, I, I don't want to go to prayer meeting. I don't want to go to table group. I don't want to love my wife today. I don't want to love my husband today. My kids are driving me crazy. I don't want to love them today. I don't want to be gentle. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to put the fruit of the Spirit on. I'll tell you what I want to put on. So, like, just think through. The next time that happens, you're like, I don't want to go to church. 
I don't want to love my spouse. I don't want to be kind. What do you do? Do you just simply say, well, I mean, God doesn't want lukewarm worship, so I guess I just won't go. I'm just trying to be obedient. <laughs> like, that would be the wrong, wrong, wrong application. Well, if I can't do it all in my heart, I'm just not going to go at all. So here, here, here's, here's what to do. Number one, you just acknowledge your sin. You need to confess it. So you just go, God, in my heart, I do not want to go to church this morning. God, in my heart, I, I have no desire to love my wife right now. I have no desire to love my husband. I have no desire to go to work and be a light to these people who are just mean to me or whatever it is. Just admit your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Confess it to God. And then repent of it. And say, God, forgive me for my selfishness. Forgive me for wanting to pursue my own pleasures. Forgive me for being so concerned about my kingdom that I will not, that I do not love your kingdom and I do not want to honor those. God, thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross for my sins so I could be forgiven of this apathetic worship that I have this morning. And God, I pray that you would forgive this and I know that on the basis of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I can say thank you, God, for forgiving me. And thank you, God, for the grace and mercy that is new every morning. So I can repent and know that you love me and that you'll strengthen me. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to obey. I'm going to go to church because I know it's the right thing to do. It's the way to honor you. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my husband. I'm going to love my children. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. And I'm going to do the very thing which you command me to do, knowing that you'll give me the grace and strength to do it. Because, God, I know that your will is better than my will. Because Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So I'm going to say that I know this is what I want to do, and it is sinful, so I'm going to repent of that, and I'm going to obey you because your will is better. And then I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to trust that as I obey, you will restore the joy in my heart. I know that my will and affections are weak, but I know that, God, you will strengthen them, and as I trust in you, you will renew my joy. Because John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So you're not faking it. That's not what, that's not what Scripture calls us to do. Well, I'll just go to church anyway, and just put on my smile, and just act like I want to be here. No, you do want to be here, and you are going to fight to want to have those feelings because you know it's your sin that's pulling you away. So you're going to admit it, you're going to repent of it, you're going to obey, and you're going to trust, this is what it is to live by faith, that God will strengthen you and give you the grace to obey him, and that as you do that, he will renew your joy. See, so often what we do is we sit back, you want me to love my wife, God? Then make me love my wife. And when I start feeling like I love her, then it's when I'll do it. When you want me to go to church, God, just make me want to go to church, and then I'll go. So we're saying, I'm just, I'm just going to sit in my sin. And yet God has given you 66 books talking about his love for you, talking about exactly what he wants you to do, and talking about then how he comes alongside you and strengthens you and encourages you and builds you up, places his spirit in you. So it's not you that's doing it. 
It's ultimately his strength that enables you to obey him. So I encourage you, encourage us as a church, let us be a church that examines our heart. Because it's when we do this that no matter what trial we are in, what hardship we are in, we'll fight against the fog that wants to set in our hearts, that the enemy wants us to believe in. And we will continue to see the beauty and the magnificence of our God. And we will walk by faith. And this is something we do individually. And this is something we need one another to do, which is why we do table groups and we encourage community at all times. Because sometimes I don't want to do it and I don't want to follow scripture. So I need you to come alongside me and remind me of the truths of scripture and hold my hand and walk me into church or walk me into loving my wife or walk me into whatever it is at that moment. Because we are to be a people who walks with one another, loves one another, and we are the very means that God uses to strengthen each other. I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to take communion. And I, I just want to encourage you. We've read today. We're called to examine our hearts. We read in 1 Corinthians 11. If we don't examine our hearts, there are consequences to that at times. And so I, I encourage you, to examine your heart, and if there is sin within your heart, if you see that there's an apathy that is set that has begun to set in, if there's a skepticism, if there's a spiritual fog, you're like, there is something on my heart, and I have not been living a life of worship. I encourage you, confess that today. Don't come and take the elements first. Confess that where you're at today, and then come and partake of the elements. And if for some reason, you know that you need to go to someone and talk to them, and they're not here. It's okay to wait to take this until next week if you feel like you should do that prior to partaking of the elements. So I just wanted to encourage you, let's practice what we just read. Let's not just ignore the teachings of God. I would much rather half of us sit in our seats today because we're seeking to be obedient to the Scripture of God, wanting to walk by faith, than to ignore it and just say, well, I'm just going to take it because I don't want it to look strange or weird. In fact, I encourage you, if you walk by someone who doesn't get up, praise God. Because they're examining their heart right now and pray for them as well. So let me pray. The ushers will come and they'll dismiss us row by row. And as I pray, I encourage you, you pray also. Father, Father, we, we praise you that you are such a good and gracious Father, that you do not leave us in our sin. You don't ignore it, but you confront it. You'll bring trials in our life. You'll bring people in our life. You'll bring circumstances to reveal the condition of our heart. You give us your word. You have placed your spirit within us. And Lord, I just pray that we as a church, God, help us to examine our hearts God, you are worthy of all glory and honor. God, we want your name to be praised here in every part of the creation. For you alone are worthy, and you have shown us not only the greatness of your power through all the creation, but you have shown us ultimately your power and your love by sending your son, Jesus Christ, that he would die on a cross for our sins and that by your power you would raise him up again, overcoming death, overcoming sin, overcoming Satan, so that we would know we who believe in you are forgiven, assurance of our salvation. 
we'd have the guarantee that your spirit dwells within us, strengthening us, that through your power we can live for you a life of worship. And God, I pray that is our heart. I pray that is our goal. I pray that is our desire. God, may we be a people who examine our heart because you are worthy of all worship. May we repent with joy, knowing that you always forgive. Father, bless this time of communion now. In your name, Jesus, amen.